0: Listening to Rattle and Pedal, Diversion Thoughts on Marketing and Growing Professional Services Firms. Your hosts are Jason Malicki and Jeff McKay.
1: All right, Jeff. So last time when we we left off, we were talking about really the opportunities available, really, from the the, the ESG movement and some kind of the, the growth and this as a, as a central issue that it presents to firms. So today we talked about, we want to talk about risks and rewards. But I, I guess the question is, is... <laughs> As we talked and set up, are we starting with risks or are we starting with rewards? Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> let's do it then.
2: <laughs> We're going to talk about both because they really are opposite sides of the same coin. I actually was hoping we'd start off with another Michael Jackson song or something. <laughs> I don't think I have any more. Well, let's jump into the risk. That's kind of my personality. I like to identify the risk and engineer them. So let's talk about that. So from my perspective, given where we are, and this is particularly U.S. based, I would also argue to some degree this would apply to EU countries as well. But because you and I are in the U.S., we take a predominantly U.S. focus. The challenge with ESG as this nascent, you called it a movement, which I find interesting. Is it a movement? Is that the right word for that? I'm going to have to think about that. You got me thinking again, Jason. My perspective, the, the biggest risk with this, where the movement is right now, is that firms are playing with political fire. Because so many of the issues in the ESNG, and there are actually within this movement, those that think, those three letters are not enough, and there should be more letters in it. Imagine that, is very political. And my sense is one of the biggest risks is if you have a prominent brand, whether that's you know globally, nationally, or even locally, that people know it's not a matter if you're going to fall on the wrong side of some of these ESNG issues, it's a matter of when and to what degree. And there was a recent example I just saw in the Wall Street Journal. And some of these examples, I think it's important to note, may not be insight-driven companies, professional services firms or SaaS companies or necessarily complex B2B companies, That listen to rattle and pedal. But I think these are the canaries in the coal mine, if you will, and they're consumer brands. And one of the most recent ones was Anheuser-Busch. Everybody knows Anheuser-Busch. They have been called out during Pride Month for contributions to GOP candidates that seek to legitimate discrimination in the minds of the other side. And the reason they were called out is because they made $35,000, $35,000 contribution to local GOP candidates, $35,000. What percent of Anheuser-Busch's lobbying budget do you think that is? (laughs) $35,000. $35,000. And now the Stonewall Inn in New York during Pride Month, Stonewall is considered you know, the kind of birthplace of the gay movement, is pouring Anheuser-Busch products down the drain this weekend. And they're doing it because they have the platform to do it. Think about that. Because Anheuser-Busch contributed $35,000 to G- local GOP candidates, they're being protested. And Anheuser-Busch has a very strong LGBTQ support. They've given, I don't know, 10, 100 times that amount to other organizations, but they're being called out in a very public way right now.
1: I'm going to shift gears a little bit, not not a lot, but but to your point of of risk of alienation. I thought that what you also hit on was, was true is the political firepiece, just this notion that so many of the issues that are wrapped up inside of ESG and, and everything tied with it, everything's become super political in this country, even things that are really simple. So, like look at just the whole mask thing that we faced in the during the pandemic, how that became such a flashpoint for so many people about you know, a rejection of a pretty simple ask at the end of the day for a lot of people. Hey, you walk into a store, can you throw a mask on while you're in there? The 10 minutes you're in there, right? And it became a really, it became a big flashpoint. So the example I'll give is, you ever heard of the company Uline? Yes. Yeah, so Uline makes... Packaging supplies. I guess they send out a pretty big catalog. We get it here at our office because we had bought some packaging supplies from them years ago. Send out a pretty thick catalog every you know once or twice a year or however frequently they do. And I opened it up one day and I got it in the mail. I flipped it. I looked, and for whatever reason, I flipped right to the page. It was a letter from the CEO, and the letter from the CEO was essentially this very open, candid message saying that our country was on the wrong direction since Trump left office, and that she prays and all these things that that you know will, will bring him back. And it was this very kind of like politically charged message, very clearly, unlike anything I'd ever seen from a CEO. And I thought, wow, that is a really risky <laughs> letter to write only because you've just alienated a good chunk of customers that are like, I'm not doing business with you because you know, you're know you clearly a very avid Trump supporter. And then you've probably attracted a whole bunch of customers as well. And it just struck me as a, a really interesting maneuver that a CEO would choose to use their product catalog, their their central marketing asset as a chance to present a political position like that. You know, like you always say, obviously, presumably she she understood the risk and she did it anyway because she thought it was the right thing to do. But I just thought, wow, you know what an interesting place we are—that that a CEO is is doing that. If I added to the discussion, right, it
2: just took us off course. No, I don't think it took us off course at all. I think that's exactly what we were talking about in our last episode about that Venn diagram of you know those focused on shareholder value, those focused on purpose, and making those strategic choices. And purpose can be left or. Right. And then you have, you know, the kind of, as we said, that muddled middle, if you will, that I refer to as the herd that that probably is made up of both pragmatists who are trying to figure out you know, which way these winds are blowing. And then those that just have no idea. Right. They're just going along with the flow. But I think your comments are spot on. This is political fire that we're playing with. And whether you make the choice or someone makes the choice for you is the essential question here, because the choice will be made for you if you don't make it. So you have to decide, are you going to be in control of your brand and the messages that you send out there? Are you going to let somebody else control your narrative? And textbook branding would say, you know, you don't want somebody else to control it, particularly if the organic development of that brand is negating, you know, your strategic objectives, right? When your consumers of your brand give it an energetic and positive life, that's great. But when your competitors or negative forces do it, it's not good for you. So I, I want to go back to something you said about the lobbying, though, because I think this is this is another critical dimension of strategy for professional services firms in general. Big firms have strong lobbying contingents because so much of what they do is driven by statute and regulatory bodies. In March, under the Biden administration, SEC, there is a focus on ESG, And there is a stampede into that space to shape what these ES&G regulations are going to look like. And the Deloitte's and KPMG's and PwC's, are all going to weigh into that because it's going to impact how audits are done, what gets reported. Because right now, ES&G are voluntarily, voluntarily reported. But it seems to me that that probably is going to change soon. I think it has to change. You know, it's interesting
1: because one of the things I was going to point out in our driver's episode was... There has been a huge flood of capital into ESG funds, you know. So if you look in Fortune magazine, I think it was not the most recent issue, but sort of the April-May issue, they had a, a, a summary of this, and I don't have it in front of me. But you're talking, you know, thousand percent growth, thousands of percent of growth into ESG funds in 2021. So there's a huge interest from investors, both institutional and individual to invest in companies that are making progress on the ESG front. Here's the problem. (laughs) To your point, a lot of those funds, it's a little fuzzy whether or not they're actually investing in companies that are making strong environmental movements or, or, or addressing these issues and what constitutes a company that is invested in by those ESG funds is sort of an unregulated concept, right? It's an investment purpose statement on a fund's prospectus but it's not really kind of like organic, right? You, know, you mm-hmm. can be organic mm-hmm. and not be certified organic, right? Same kind of thing. So probably a good idea with that much capital going in there because it just it creates space for, just face it, bad players, right? People to claim that they're doing things and not do them. <laughs> so interesting.
2: I thought that was an insightful comment and it reflects to a large degree in my mind what's happening with the ESG movement and why there's such an emphasis on this through corporations. Corporations, in my mind, have become the global power brokers. They transcend nation states and their resources. I mean, the big four accounting firms, their revenues, I want to say in 2020, maybe 2019, I wrote a blog post on this, whereas $154 billion combined, four companies, that combined total was bigger than almost half of all the nation's GDPs. Just those four corporations combined were bigger than any economy in the bottom half of the nation states. That's incredible power to wheel.
1: Yeah. And the flip of that is is—is look at the opportunity for change, right? So I'll tell a really quick story. I don't remember really where I read it. It was, a—I read this article. It might have been in Fast Company or Fortune. It's been years, years, 10 years ago, probably. And it was about this environmental activist. So it was a guy that was one of the leading voices in the environmental movement. So I don't remember exactly what his role was. He had worked in nonprofits, he had been sort of like a kind of a, just a very, vocal activists in creating change in our carbon footprints, our pollution, you name it, right? Out of nowhere, the guy leaves the, the community of activism and takes on like a role at Walmart in an environmental capacity. And he gets completely torn to shreds by the environmental community that he's going to kind of like the dark side, right? like It's like you joined the empire here because you went to Walmart. And he was like, no, you don't get it. He's like, I can create more change at Walmart than I could ever create as an activist. And so his point was, when I come into the company and and I have a mandate to make us a more sustainable company and the scale of Walmart globally, I can have a bigger impact on the entire climate than I ever could as an activist. So in a sense, I guess maybe to your point, you know, because of the scale of corporations, this is where there's opportunity for real change and issues that matter to people. So that's... You know,
0: you're listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on growing your professional services firm. Your hosts are Jason Malicki, principal of Rattleback, the marketing agency for professional services firms, and Jeff McKay, former CMO and founder of strategy consultancy Prudent Pedal. If you find this podcast helpful, please help us by telling a friend and rating us on iTunes. Thank you. Now back to Jason and Jeff.
2: Well, do a Google search on titles like chief diversity officer, chief sustainability officer, and look at the trend of their usage. And you'll see a huge uptick in the usage of those terms. I mean, those things didn't exist a decade ago. And now all organizations are moving in a direction of having those titles in their organizations and on their boards because they're assigning ownership of impacting these areas. And you know, for some, those are critical roles. I would argue for some, they're window dressing, no matter what they would argue, contrary to that. Again, those are important things to manage because they will be identified if they're window dressing, but the corporations wield the power. And it's coming to, I think it's really coming to a, the rubbers hitting the road, if you will. And let's talk about the kind of next risk here. If The first one is this brand risk that, you know, the true commitment and viability of your ESG efforts, are they real or are they window dressing? is the first one. The second is, I think, revenue generation. And there's two, two dimensions of this risk. The first one is, are you, as an organization, willing to turn away business that represents values or an approach to business that is inconsistent with your own and and, in your stated purpose and ESG goals? Are you willing to walk away from that business? That's when you really begin to see how committed organizations are to this. And it's important that leadership teams understand that, you know, if you want to do a audit for, you know, some organization, and this is a $50 Fifty million dollar audit opportunity, or whatever it is, and you're saying no, we're not doing it because they are not doing X around the ES and G, and we don't want to be associated with that. That's a big decision to to make. Yeah, but I would
1: liken it to just—it's an extension of a positioning decision, right? You know, so good positioning attracts and repels, right? So if you decline that huge audit opportunity because you don't agree with, you know, the, you don't want to partner with that in particular organization. The flip of that is that may draw someone to you who says, man, you know, Deloitte or KPMG or whatever really lives by their ideals. They said that this is what their, their stance was on this issue. And they're making hard revenue choices about that. I want to do business with them. Right. So with every closed revenue door, there's another revenue door that opens. So as you said at the beginning, you know, it's not risk and reward. It's kind of, you know, There's risk and reward on every decision.
2: Yeah. I think the other the other part to revenue generation is if you do not have the right positioning or the data to back up your propositions, many of the RFPs that are going to be presented to you may not, you know, invite you to to propose, right? Or you'll get knocked out in an early Round if you're not aligned, I'm going to say if you're not aligned, I think one of the challenges, and we'll talk about this when we, we talk about how to manage, is geographic risk, hmm. right? If you're a large global organization or even a multinational, how you approach ES&G is really going to depend on the geographies that you're operating in. And like some of those consumer brands, there are local flavors that are adjusted to you know those local geographic needs, if you will, whether, whether you're selling KFC or McDonald's or Coca-Cola or whatever your product is, there's going to be some adaptation at the geographic level. Well, when we're talking about insight-driven firms where your world is really digital and all that thinking, it's a little harder to do. And there's risk associated with that, right? Because ideas flow across geographies in a very different way than flavors, if you will. So thinking through what's the geographic strategy And how are these going to be adapted in a way that maintains the global brand perspective and purpose of the organization, but is sensitive to local geography demands? Yeah,
1: I think that's a really good one because I was just trying to, I was looking for data to see if I had it. There was a piece on renewable energy. In the United States, and there was comparisons between renewable energy in the U.S. versus other countries. And as you would guess, I mean, it's it's a it's an extreme minority of the energy production in the U.S. But if you look at say a Nordic country, then it's a very high percentage—60, you know, 70, 80 percent of, of energy is actually renewable. So, to your point, if you if you're going to emphasize your environmental standards, it's going to look a little different in the states than it is. In Norway, and it's going to look a little different in Texas than it does in Maine. And so you're you're going to have to think through all those all those layers, and how you're going to talk about your firm and your your stance on that one issue of energy. To the extent it's it's germane to what you do, right? To the extent you need to have a position on this, maybe you don't need to have a position on this at all. But if you do, you got to think about it in all those levels, right?
2: Yeah. Okay. So the flip side of all these risks are the rewards. And we, we've kind of touched on them somewhat, but and alluded to it at the end of our last podcast, the reward right now is the opportunity to help organizations sort through the complexity of E, S, and G and for firms to offer new solutions around these. And there are, are a lot of revenue generation opportunities coming out of this. Because organizations are wrestling with how to navigate these uncertain waters. So all that risk we just talked about, firms need help with. And there's a great opportunity for professional services firms, I think, there in particular. Yeah. And if you think about it, there's cascading
1: levels, right? They need advice. They need technology. They need data. They need analytics. I mean, they, they, there's so much that that clients need. In order to move on some of their goals around social issues and environmental issues from firms, it's almost staggering. And so, yeah, I, I think that, that, you know, t- to me, the place, well, and we'll, we'll go to wrap here. But to me, the, the, the place that firms need to put the most thought into this is is Personally, I think it's more on the client side. How do we help our clients navigate through this than it is on their side? I'm not saying they don't have to deal with it on their side, especially in to your point of, of some of the really large firms that are, let's face it, going to be under the same scrutiny that any other publicly traded company is. And so, yeah. but but it just seems to me like that clients need a lot of help, and firms are positioned to help them. Yeah. So.
2: And then I think the final, well, not the final, because you're going to be the. Clock miser here. Uh, we're industry. well past
1: we're well past our, our, our point of delivery <laughs> yeah. here. So we're like a we're like a slow Spanish train arriving in, uh, uh, <laughs> in Madrid.
2: <laughs> so I think the other reward here is where maybe to a large degree this this all started and that's in the access to talent. And we yeah. talked about it on our last podcast with the Millennials and Gen Z and they're wanting to work with organizations that are purpose-driven and, and having an impact on the world, if you're gonna want access to the best talent, this is what the talent is wanting from the organizations. So you're going to have to speak into that in some form or fashion and then perform accordingly. So, and if you do that, you're gonna be able to expand your talent pool. And that's critical.
1: Yeah, and maybe a great way to stop to end that. I'm gonna read the, I'm gonna read a headline from a journal article. I'm just gonna read the headline. Forget going back to the office. People are just quitting instead. It says as the pandemic cloud lifts Americans leaving employers for new opportunities is at its highest level in more than two decades. Acquiring talent is going to be more difficult in the direct and near future. So If you're concerned about getting access to to good talent, you better be on top of this because it's going to be important. All right, so we're going to put this to a wrap. Like I said, we are well past our mandate. Um, Hopefully people are still with us. The next episode in this series is going to be really about how do you do this effectively? How do you you know, think about ESG effectively in your firm? So, and as I recall, we, we talked about three different levels of that that we want to go through. So we will cover that next time. Fun conversation, buddy. All right,
0: cool. Yeah, it was good. Thanks. Yeah. See ya. Thank you for listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Find content related to this episode at rattleandpedal.com. Rattle and Pedal is also available on iTunes and Stitcher.